Hey everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church, for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today we have with us on the podcast Dr. Paul Miller, author of A Christian Case Against Christian Nationalism, The Religion of American Greatness. As a scholar, Paul Miller is a political theorist and political scientist focusing on international affairs, the American experiment, and America's role in the world. He's a professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and serves as co-chair of the Global Politics and Security Concentration. He is also a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. As a practitioner, Dr. Miller served as director for Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff under Presidents George W. Bush and then Barack Obama. He worked as an intelligence analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency and served as a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army. Miller's writing has appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Dispatch, The Washington Post, Providence Magazine, Mere Orthodoxy, The Gospel Coalition, Foreign Policy, and elsewhere. He holds a PhD in International Relations and a BA in Government from Georgetown University and a Master in Public Policy from Harvard University. He is a contributing editor of Providence, a Journal of Christianity and American Foreign Policy, a research fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and a visiting professor with AEI's Initiative on Faith and Public Life. Well, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today, Dr. Miller, and being willing to talk with us about this. Uh, Kirk, thanks so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Looking forward to our conversation. So maybe a first question I can ask is just tell us a little bit about your background, if you would. I know you talk a bit about this in the book to help situate where you are coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do... I cover a little bit of my story in the book because it's relevant to the subject matter and kind of helps explain why I wrote the book in the first place. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, was raised in the West Coast and was raised in a in a church-going family, and uh, I would say it was a politically and theologically conservative background. Uh, I know a lot of folks maybe don't know what conservative means anymore because it's changed so much, but I kind of mean that in the pre-2016 sense, and I'm I'm still happy to call myself conservative. Uh, and, a, and a theological traditionalist. But around 2016, I kind of realized I didn't understand my 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 tribe anymore. Seems that things had changed and people were saying stuff that didn't seem to mesh with what I, what I thought we all believed. And uh, that kicked off a half decade of uh, reading a lot of American history and political theory. And that's uh, so why I wrote this book on on what I, on, on Christian nationalism because that seemed to be a better way, a more accurate way of characterizing the political right. It wasn't really conservative. And indeed, just uh, last week, there's been a couple of prominent articles by p- people saying, yeah, that's right, we're not conservative anymore. Mm-hmm. I still am, uh, but but the right is, I think it is nationalist and American nationalism has always taken uh, Christianity, Christian language, rhetoric, symbols uh, as, as a defining trait of American nationhood. So. Christian nationalism is what we see on the right. Yeah. You started talking about this a little bit, but maybe walk us through a bit more of your impetus specifically then for writing the book. Like, why do you feel like a book like this is necessary? Well, I like to joke that I uh, I write to make the voices inside my head go away. <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean is I wrote out of a sense of compulsion. You know, I, I didn't feel like I had a choice in the matter. This was so important 
important, so overridingly important. And I needed to explain to myself what was going on in our country and what was going on you know, in my tribe, so to speak, um, and amongst my fellow believers in, in the pews I was going to every Sunday. Uh, so that's kind of why personally I wrote it. I just, I couldn't not do it. Uh, I hope and pray that this is a helpful book for others who are trying to make sense of our cultural and political moment. Uh, I hope it helps kind of challenge, edify, inform, maybe inspire people who are rethinking how our faith interacts with our politics. What is the right way to be a Christian in America? What are the political implications of our faith? Because there are some, there absolutely are some, Mm -hmm. but how do you work for equal justice for everyone as a Christian without falling into the trap of Christian nationalism and all the bad things it can engender? Yeah. Now we've already said the term Christian nationalism a few times, and this is one of those terms like with uh, any sort of significant, meaningful discussion where we need to define our terms. Um, And so this is also, I think, coming into this conversation, I imagine a lot of people feel that this is a term that just gets lobbed out with not a lot of specificity, with quite a bit of ambiguity, and it's sort of weaponized against Christians who are merely engaged in politics politics Christianly or from conservative values. Yeah. So maybe walk us through what you specifically mean by Christian nationalism. And then the follow-up question I would ask is, what isn't Christian nationalism? Uh, what are maybe yeah. some misunderstandings of it? Yeah. Uh, the Defining the terms, it's almost the whole ballgame, right? If you, if you don't define it well, then the conversation makes no sense. And look, I'm as frustrated as anybody. In fact, I think I'm more frustrated at the way the term has been lazily thrown about as an epithet, as an insult, to refer to all Christian political engagement, uh, and it's it's. I read article after article of people saying, "What's the real definition of Christian nationalism?" After I just spent six years and wrote one hundred and ten thousand words trying to define it for everyone. So I would love to see more precision in the use. Uh, so Christian nationalism, it, it's not a term to refer to any Christian engagement in politics. Look. of Americans are Christians or professing Christians, and we vote. And so that's involvement in politics. Is that all Christian nationalism? Of course not. I don't think Christian nationalism means being pro-life, being pro-religious liberty, uh, or even, uh, you know, voting for Christian principles if what you mean is equal justice and flourishing for all. Uh, That's a Christian principle. I vote for that, and I'm going to work for that. I think Christian nationalism means... Uh, If you think America is a Christian nation, quote unquote, and you think the government has a role, a duty, a responsibility to keep it that way, that I think is Christian nationalism. In other words, if you are, if you're a nationalist, if you have a specific idea of American identity, a cultural heritage you think that we have to be in order to remain truly American, and you think that heritage is a Judeo-Christian heritage, And you think that the government should make it a point of public policy at the point of law to essentially coerce us to agree or defend or uphold that specific cultural identity. That's Christian nationalism. And it's different from working for Christian principle in the public square. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And let me back up the question a little bit too, because I found this helpful in your book. I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, you you first try to define what is nationalism and then specifically Christian nationalism. Can you walk us through that as well? Because I think for me, getting a clear sense of nationalism was helpful because I think oftentimes people hear nation and they think of state and they think of a, a country and you 
did some good work, at least for me, to help me see how the, the, the use of the word nation can be used differently than that in terms of nationalist ideas. Yeah, yeah. And in particular, a lot of people use the word nationalism interchangeably with patriotism. Right. And, and there's, some, there's some folks out there, who I think, who kind of disingenuously say, hey, look, I'm a nationalist and all I mean is we should love our country. Right. Well, look, I love our country. Uh, and I think we should. I think actually patriotism is a positive Christian virtue because I think we're supposed to be grateful. We should have gratitude for our homes and for where we come from. And and that's a, that's a normal human experience to have that affection and gratitude for your home. Uh, most people call that patriotism, right? That's I think just to be precise in our usage, that's what patriotism is. Uh, and my frustration is that there's some nationalists who say we should all be nationalists because it just means love of your country. But if you push them harder. They then go on to say, our country is this specific thing with a specific cultural heritage, and you have to love it that way to be a real patriot. And that's where I think it gets a little disingenuous, and they're blurring terms. Okay, so nationalism is a political ideology, goes back two centuries, it's not new. And it really starts with the premise that you can look at the map of the world's cultures and draw a map with clear, distinct, hard boundary lines, as clear and distinct as a checkerboard, where you have discrete squares or blobs with borders that are hard, clear, and fast, so that there's one square on that checkerboard that captures the essence of Frenchness, you know, French culture, French identity. And then the next square over is the essence of German identity. And then the nationalist says, now that we've driven the, drawn this checkerboard, every square gets its own distinct government. And the government and the culture should overlap exactly. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the job of the government is to protect and preserve that identity, that national identity of Frenchness. Okay, That's nationalism. Uh, and it's different from patriotism, which just says, I love my country, no matter how you draw the lines, no matter what the national identity is, no matter what the culture is, I'm going to love my home, I'm going to be grateful for it, I'm going to be, uh, you know, recognize my affection for it. Yeah. So that's nationalism. Yeah. yeah. So then Christian nationalism, tell me if if I'm off here or if you would add anything, is then a specific form of nationalism, whereas maybe other forms of nationalism are more based off of uh, maybe like an ethnic group or a certain sense of cultural identity. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, I think you use the language even of nationalism oftentimes presents a certain mythology of history, that mm -hmm. there is this sort of neat grouping of people that just doesn't bear out historically yep. or in reality. But Christian nationalism then is sort of a way of doing that, but saying the nation that we need to preserve here, the identity of this nation that ought to have like as, as much as we can get perfect overlap with the state or the country is a particular Christian culture and yep. identity. Is that fair? Yeah. So there's all kinds of different flavors of nationalism, depending upon what thing you want to define the nation by. So historically there was a uh, linguistic nationalism Again, France is the country for people who speak the French language, for example. That would be an example of linguistic nationalism. Of course, there was racial nationalism, and that was pretty strongly prevalent in American history, as people said, this is a country for white people or for people of European descent. Uh, and, and white nationalism is still around, but I wanted to focus on Christian nationalism because it's a stronger argument, and it's, I think it's more popular, more widespread than white nationalism. And Christian nationalism looks at the American square on that checkerboard and says, what is it that makes America, America? And they say it's our Judeo-Christian cultural heritage. 
more than our ideals, our creed, the Constitution, the Declaration. What the Nationalist says is the Constitution, Declaration, they're important, but they're a byproduct of our culture. And so the culture kind of comes first. You have to preserve the Judeo-Christian culture if you want to keep the Declaration, the Constitution, the creed. That's the powerful argument behind Christian nationalism. You've got to keep the Christian culture if you want to keep American democracy intact. Yeah. Let's then start diving into um, understanding the problem as far as you see it. Um, the first one I would want to, first question I would want to ask is, is Christian nationalism actually an issue? I could see someone saying, you know, sure, there are some radicals out there. Like, yeah, we saw, you know, January 6th, there's people holding up a Jesus saves flag next to an American flag storming the Capitol. But in real, like normal, substantial sort of population and people I'm interacting with on a daily basis. It's not really an issue. This is this is all just drummed up sort of by uh, people trying to take advantage of a, of a political moment or something like that. So is this really just something drummed up by the left, so to say, or how, like, is this is an is this an actual issue? Well, there's a book right now called uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism, which is a bestseller on Amazon. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I didn't make that up. Um, the term is relatively recent in the mainstream. It's been around in scholarly circles for longer than that, but it did enter mainstream discourse more relatively recently, mostly by the critics. But but now you see on the right, people are openly embracing the label. Marjorie mm -hmm. Taylor Greene did, uh, and, and among many others. And there's people now on Amazon writing books defending it. So it's clearly a thing. Something like one third of Americans say that we, sh in public opinion polls, they say we should indeed amend the U.S. Constitution to recognize America is a Christian nation, right? So if thirty percent of Americans say something like that, I would say Christian nationalism is a thing. Now the thing is, Christian nationalism exists along a spectrum, and most of them are moderate and peaceful. And so you, you can look at that and say, well, maybe Christian nationalism isn't a big deal because it's relatively benign if you only look at the moderate version of it. I still think the moderate version is theologically incorrect and politically unwise, but it, I acknowledge it's mostly, you know, it's, it's mostly peaceful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say benign because I think there are seeds there of injustice, but it is peaceful. Mm, the problem yeah. is that Christian nationalism also has an, an extremist version and even a violent version. And, and we saw that on display on January 6th last year as they were waving the Christian flag, playing Christian music, praying a prayer in Jesus' name on the floor of the U.S. Senate after violently breaking into the building and committing a felony, by the way. So there's a, that version of Christian nationalism as well. And I, I, What I see is that the moderates are not taking responsibility for the extremists. And they're denying that there's a connection, denying that there's a problem. The moderate Christian nationalists, who again, I think they're wrong, um, are are trying to get away with being moderate and not taking any responsibility for the implicit connection there is to the extremists within their own ranks. And that is a, a deeply troubling phenomenon. So help us understand then if, if it sort of exists on a spectrum of maybe, I don't know the right language, maybe intensity or how strongly one is willing to push some of the principles that are held. Um, that's right. I, I raise that because I think 
this discussion I, I have seen sort of get dismissed very quickly as just sort of the boogeyman of the left. And I'm not saying that there isn't ways where the left you throws around Christian nationalism at people, and I don't think you're saying this either, where it's not legitimate and it's it's unhelpful. To, then it actually inoculates people to detecting where it truly is present. Um, and so maybe help us understand what are some of the characteristics that can um, present in when 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 Christian nationalism is being held or practiced, I, I know we gave a definition, but kind of what would what would it look like on the ground? What would maybe be some of the beliefs, some of the presuppositions that people are operating from? Where do we tend to see it in our churches and maybe our own thinking? Yeah, sounds like you're asking what's wrong with Christian nationalism. Like, what's the what's the problem here? Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I could I could approach that kind of theoretically and explain why I think nationalism just doesn't work. But uh, maybe it'll be easier to, to be as specific as I can. There's a, there's a theological problem with Christian nationalism, but there's also a political problem with Christian nationalism. Theologically, I think Christian nationalism uh, preaches uh, incorrect doctrine about, uh, about civil government. Uh, what I mean is that it, uh, it confuses this is what the gospel is really about. Right? The gospel is primarily about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the saving power of his, of his death on the cross for us and our need to repent from our sins. Christian nationalism uses Christianity as a moral legitimizing factor in a political agenda. And again, I don't deny that Christianity has political implications. That's true. But the way you see Christian nationalists use Christianity is less to advocate for Christian principles than it is to advocate for Christian tribal power. Um, you know, um, trying to think of a very clear example here. Good example might be school prayer. You ask about school prayer on the right, and many people uh, on the right really want to see school prayer come back. I'm talking in public schools. Mm -hmm. They want public school teachers to lead students in prayer and in Bible study. Famously, those were both struck down by the Supreme Court in a pair of cases in 1963 and 64, I think. Um, I think the Supreme Court was actually correct on this one. And I say that mm -hmm. as a Christian. And here's why. The church and the church alone is given the responsibility to be the, the, the body of Christ, the voice of Christ, the messenger of Christ in this world. The church alone has the keys of the kingdom, as, as Jesus gave the apostles in Matthew 16. Uh, the church is authorized to speak with the name of Christ about uh, the gospel and thus to lead in public prayers and lead in the public teaching of God's word. Caesar was not given that responsibility. The government was not given that responsibility. God created government, but God gave government a specific and limited jurisdiction. He did not give government the jurisdiction to regulate right worship of himself or to teach truth about God. That's not the government's job, and it's dangerous to give government that job. The church needs to jealously guard its prerogative to be the sole representative of Jesus's message on earth through public teaching and public prayer. When you outsource that to Caesar in the form of public school prayer, you have no idea what they're going to teach. And historically, governments always, always, always manipulate religious language for their own ends. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to let Caesar be in charge of public Bible teaching and public prayers, he's not going to end up teaching biblical Christianity. 
he's going to end up teaching national interest, the state interest, with enough Jesus thrown in to make it sound moral. And if you doubt that, just open up a book of history. Every government in the world has done that for thousands of years. So I think school prayer, uh, keeping it uh, in the hands of the church and private schools is a really good idea to protect the church's prerogative. That's my theological problem with Christian nationalism. It's a whole other political problem. Yeah. It it, it reminds me of the classic, um, you know, particularly Baptist conviction, um, not exclusively Baptist, but largely formulated and held up by Baptists of religious liberty, which is rooted in this understanding that um, individual, like the gospel is uh, is a message, Jesus being the, the, the person and his work at the center of the gospel, but the message when uh, it, when it saves someone, it does so by their choice. It, it's volitional. It's, it's, there is uh, a, a, a free, willful decision they make to put their trust in Christ that we believe in. We believe in a, a free church, of made up of believers as Baptists. And so the idea of coercing religion uh, is only going to produce counterfeit religion. And so there's an understanding even of religious liberty where I don't see a benefit in, if I, if I understand that the, like a public school, for instance, or, or a public arena at large to, to broaden it to not just that example. If I, if I understand that there are other citizens who are not Christians, I don't see a benefit in imposing Christian um, sort of worship or Christian religious expression on them. Um, th- that's to be clear. That's not to say that I don't engage, bring my theology and my Christian ethics into bear in how I vote and how, how, how I want to see public policy shaped. But there's an institutional distinction that you're saying between the church and the state, between the, the, mm-hmm. the church and the public sphere, where yes, I engage Christianly in politics, but I'm not imposing sort of Christian faith on people per se if that makes sense. So this, your, your argument sort of overlaps with some traditional Baptist Mm -hmm. uh, theology as well. And an understanding of a separation between church and state, which we know John Leland uh, was very influential with Thomas Jefferson and and things like that. And getting those things passed initially in our founding as a country. Yeah, Yeah, no, that's, that's true. I think the Baptists kind of got this one right. And other church traditions will not emphasize this separation of jurisdiction. So, so clearly, Um, but look at the fruit of the other traditions. When the church and the state uh, partner up and align, when you have established churches, as in much of Europe or in the United States, there was a essentially a quasi-establishment of Protestantism uh, clear up through the 1960s. The fruit of that is, um, <clears throat> well, it's Caesaropapism, to give it the technical term. It is to allow the manipulative use of religion for political purposes. And that's Christian nationalism right there. Uh, it is less a religion than it is a political ideology that uses religion for political ends. And I don't think Christians should let ourselves be manipulated that way. We shouldn't let our faith be treated as nothing more than a handmaiden to the state. It's far more important than that. Once again, there are indeed political implications of our faith. We should advocate for them, but but on our terms, not the state's terms. And Christian nationalism is essentially a statist ideology that, that let that, you know, takes your religion and puts it at the behest of the state and lets it use it as it will. Which is an interesting observation. You mentioned it's a statist idea. And if I understand correctly, you plan on writing a second book more critiquing 
the progressive uh, progressive tendencies, which I, I also imagine your critique is going to be similar there, where they both kind of have a statist agenda, uh, both wanting to sort of impose their vision of culture on everybody. Um, you must accept this. This needs to be the template, the cultural template for yeah. our society. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting how both ends of the political spectrum end up uh, looking similar at points in that respect. Yeah, I mean, nationalism and progressivism are, uh, uh, they're, they're symbiotes, uh, and they're kind of mere images of each other. Uh, by symbiotes, I mean they they feed off of one another. The extremism mm-hmm. of one becomes the justification for the other to be as extreme in the opposite direction. Yes. But they are mere images in, in that they they have the same kind of structure of belief. Uh, they both want to use the powers of the national government to propagate a specific cultural moral template. The leftist wants a progressive moral template, and the right wants the kind of old-fashioned 1950s Protestant America template. Um, I'm a little old-fashioned, and I think the government shouldn't do that at all, right? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. why, why can't we Why can't we let our churches, our families, be the, the thing that sets our moral template for our lives? Uh, that's, I think, the appropriate way to, uh, to see our relationship to our government and uh, the, the right way to situate our moral lives uh, rather than looking to Washington, D.C. for that. Yeah, you, you're segueing well into the next question that I want to ask. Um, you're mentioning how progressivism and nationalism feed off of each other. The one extreme justifies the other. So my question I was going to ask, and you're in part answering this already, but what are some of the reasons you think we are currently seeing such a rise in Christian nationalist thinking and tendencies? So I think that this... Look, uh, Americans have always, always been religious, deeply religious, and thought of our politics in religious terms. That's just not new. And it was bipartisan um, for most of American history. So it would not have been controversial for Americans decades uh, and centuries ago to talk of us as a Christian people, probably because of the history, because of the, because essentially all Americans were Christians or professing Christians. And it was just kind of in the air. It was the standard of kind of political correctness, right? You, you really couldn't depart too much from orthodoxy. Um, what happened by the 60s is that there was growing pluralization in American life. More non-Christians, more heterodox Christians, more Catholics, more Jews, more secularists, and greater ethnic diversity as well, and greater awareness of, of the world. And so... Uh, those who wanted to hold to a traditional notion of American identity that really emphasized our Christian identity coalesced into a a more partisan movement. And here we're talking about the religious right or the Christian right. The religious right was really an effort to um, reassert America's Christian identity. In some ways that was, you know, it, that involved the pro-life movement, great. That involved advocacy for religious liberty, great. But it also involved a lot of Christian nationalism, like school of prayer. That's not great. Um, and so that's the story of the last, you know, four decades or so. And then it gets supercharged in just the last 15 or so years with the amount of change and tumult in American life. Everything from 9-11, two wars, the 2008 financial crisis, first African-American president, the Obergefell Supreme Court decision, gay marriage, the transgenderism stuff, COVID, lockdowns. Just think about the sheer amount of change and upheaval in American life. Mm -hmm. That supercharges the movement of those who want to reassert a traditional American identity, which means a Christian identity. 
supercharges Christian nationalism. And that's, I think, what we saw in the 2016 election, right? You have a non-traditional candidate who didn't exemplify Christian virtues personally, but Trump very clearly and explicitly campaigned to restore Christian power. That was his, that's, I mean, that's a direct quote in, in the campaign. He said, I will restore Christian power. You Christians have lost your power. I will get it back for you. You've had your power taken away. You need to reassert yourselves again and again. He just emphasized that he's out for Christian power. And that was a very powerful line that really, that's why 81% of white evangelicals voted for him. It's also why so many evangelicals were enthusiastic for him. Why it wasn't just a transactional one-time vote in 16, but year after year throughout his controversial presidency, evangelicals were the group that gave him the highest approval ratings and that were the readiest to excuse whatever the scandal of the day was. I think that explains the enthusiasm we often saw in evangelical ranks. Yeah. And you make that clear, I think, in the book between distinguishing the person who maybe found themselves between a rock and a hard place voting for him and and, and was critical of uh, things that ought to have been criticized, but then also noting, yeah, but there's a whole lot of support for him in things that are actually just like bad um, and, and yeah. would be Christian nationalists and would go against Christian um, Christian principles, which is a different, that's something different entirely than the former. And I, and I should say, I really, I really didn't want to write a book about uh, Donald Trump. And, um, and I managed to only write about him in one chapter out of the 10 or 11 <laughs> yeah. chapters in there. Uh, because I think that this Christian nationalism stuff, it way predates Trump. Right. And it's gonna and it's gonna outlast him, right? Uh, whether we're in the post-Trump age now or or six years from now, I don't know. But Christian nationalism will still be around, and I think it's still important for Christians, for Americans, to understand this stuff, so that we can kind of disaggregate uh, carefully. And uh, yeah, even when Trump's off the stage. Yeah, um, and I I think it's interesting as I in my little world of observing evangelicalism how there seems to be a rise not only of sort of what might be called the alt-right and the expressions like the alternative right that is uh some of the things that we see there um but there's almost like a parallel rise in some post-millennial theonomic um like that sort of version of na like kind of christian nationalism as well that there, there there seems to be a similar reaction whereas maybe in the secular arena where, where people are I think maybe feeling like they're getting pushed into the corner by progressives. And so they're responding with more radical positions. I also think there's an interesting rise, like post-millennialism was not popular when I was growing up in America, but there is an interesting, interesting rise in it. If you're not familiar with post-millennialism, um, the listener, um, it, it, it's a much more optimistic view of like the, how the Christians are going to influence society. And that's sort of bound up into the mission is to influence society. It's a little bit of a crass take, but that's the, that's the gist of, I think, where a lot of people are going with it, at least. So it's interesting how maybe for some, it's people being driven by a politics looking for a theological home that might be more like the, the Christian right, whereas some of the, this, the rise in, Postmillennial theonomic thinking is more like a theology looking for a political home and finding it in Christian nationalism. Yeah, um, there, there's a whole lot of currents on the right, politically and theologically, right now, um, and they're all kind of moving in similar directions. And I use you know Christian nationalism as a the biggest broad umbrella term, but uh, yeah, you do have a small 
group of uh, theonomists, dominionists, um, the Catholic version, integralism, um, and, uh, and 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 you've got the post liberals who are ready to kind of renegotiate the principles of the American founding. I I have found to my surprise in conversation and, and talks I've given on the book that there's a number of people on the right who are openly very happy to talk about um, repealing the disestablishment clause of the First Amendment. The they don't care anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the separate, yeah, the institutional separation of church and state. They just don't care anymore about the doctrine, biblically or constitutionally. They just think the state needs moral guidance, and we're the ones to give it to them. And so we need to get rid of disestablishment and just put put us in charge. Now, look, that's never going to happen. That's a ludicrous idea. It's also unbiblical and unconstitutional. But I'm I'm kind of surprised at how openly people are talking. Some people are talking about it on the right, uh, and I would just want to remind Christians that it was a biblical doctrine before it was a constitutional doctrine. Jesus said, "My kingdom's not of this world." Jesus said, "Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's." Uh, I think, and Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom exclusively to the apostles, not to Caesar. So we Christians need to jealously guard the independence of the church, and, yeah, and that I means the doctrine of disestablishment. Yeah, and you make a point in the book to to describe then Christian nationalism as an illiberal. And you're using, to be clear, if, if folks aren't familiar with this, uh, not liberal, we're not using liberal here in the sense of like the political left, but sort of classically liberal, like what our constitution yeah. would reflect, um, sort of ordered liberties within a society and, and, and rights of particular people being protected constitutionally. So that would be like kind of classical, it may be a simplistic, I'm not an expert on these things, but kind of a simplistic understanding of classical liberalism that wants to preserve these certain rights and, and keep uh, church and state separate, not have an established state religion. Whereas like some people are even openly, or maybe they don't realize it, they're sort of subtly there on the continuum of, of embracing more illiberal, like post-liberal ideas. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, feeling like the dog that gets pushed into the corner, eventually it's going to bite, uh, feeling like democracy has failed them um, in the sense that they see culture going in a direction they don't like. And so it's sort of like my experience shows me classic liberalism, democracy, just doesn't work, and so as Christians, we need to we need to kind of go for the jugular and try to impose our morals um, through more institutional means. Maybe and it's a strange it's a strange time to doubt the the viability of democracy, or it's a strange time to say uh, I'm so tired of losing through the democratic machinery uh, over and over again because we just won Dobbs, right? You yeah. just got the, you know, Roe v. Wade overturned after 50 years of advocacy. So right. this year of all years, why would you doubt the validity of democracy for achieving our ends? And that's just one issue. I'll, I'll also mention that there's been a string of victories on religious freedom for the last 10, 15, even 20 years. Mm -hmm. Religious freedom is more well established in American constitutional law than ever before in American history. Mm -hmm. We are freer and more protected in the practice of our faith uh, than, than ever before. Uh, I, I think many Americans don't realize that in previous centuries, what we what we had was not religious freedom. It was religious dominance by Protestants. Catholics had no religious liberty and low class Protestants, African-American Protestants, Baptist, Methodists, ridiculed, persecuted by the state, uh, driven underground. Today, we have genuine religious liberty for all Protestants, Catholics, high class, low class, non-Christians. Uh, you know, even progressives have <laughs> religious liberty. So 
let's not doubt um, our ability to win at the game of democracy because we've had some very important victories lately. And that's mm-hmm. not to downplay that uh, we lose some uh, and that the the culture does seem to be increasingly hostile to traditional faith. That's absolutely true. And there's an answer to that, but the answer isn't Christian nationalism. I think that's the wrong way to approach the genuine challenges that are coming from the left. Yeah, because you're not denying, let's be clear, um, to the first person who feels that impulse of what is coming from the left on certain segments, uh, certain aspects of what the left represents, um, you're not denying that there is there are things there that are, are worthy of deep concern. You're going to write a book on it. That's right. That's so just wait till the, if, if you feel that's the next book. Yeah. If you feel personally like frustrated about Paul writing a book on Christian nationalism, just wait till the next one and then you'll feel happy. So, um, well, yeah. And, and, you know, as I say this in the preface that I wrote the book on Christian nationalism first because Jesus says to look at the plank in your own eye before you look at the speck or the plank in the eye of your neighbor. Um, and that, that I just felt that deeply. I, I, I've wanted to write a book about the left for a long time, but it just felt like sort of biblically, I had to write this one first. And I'm not comparing the one to the other and saying one is a greater danger. I think there are different kinds of danger. I think the left, is, it's a, there's a cultural danger there, and it's been a danger that's been creeping up slowly for a hundred years. And I think the right, it's a theological danger. And look, a year ago we saw it can be a physical danger, a violent danger as well. Uh, and I know that people are going to say, well, what about the riots in 2020? Isn't the left also potentially violent? Yeah, it does. There's a there's a potential violent danger there from the left. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of that says that there isn't also a danger on the right. So sick of the whataboutism game, you know? Right. I, I, so let me just acknowledge, yeah, problems on the left. Give me five years. I'll write that book. But let's <laughs> spend some time, you know, picking out the plank in our eye. Right. It's possible to critique two things at the same time. Like, we don't have to <laughs> play the part. Of, yeah, I know. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it, you would think that it was not common knowledge. But um, yeah, so I, I think a lot of it, too, is even even as you said, well, hey, democracy has actually provided some wins. I would want to say, too, even if it didn't, you know, even if democracy wasn't didn't have a utility that we uh, that we or the utility that we wanted it to have, um, it's still a matter of what's right you know, doing what's right for the loving our neighbors, respecting, uh, like not imposing, like it it just even going back to like Christian basic convictions around religious liberty and things like that. Um, And so even beyond just what are the results? I I think democracy is the political version of the golden rule, you know, Mm. do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That, you know, if you just translate that into political institutions, it means I let you live your life. You let me live my life. You get freedom. I get freedom. You get equality under law. I get equality under law. You respect my freedom of speech and worship. I respect your freedom of speech and worship. There's this principle of reciprocal altruism at the heart of the golden rule. And and that's the principle behind democracy and and, and individual rights. So I, I feel like the trend among Christian nationalists and the post-liberals is to throw all that out in favor of Christian dominance. Like we don't care about the other side's freedom. We're just going to tell them how to live. And I think that that is less Christian um, than a than a system of democracy that does allow people to live and allows people to choose wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it is actually a measure of love for our neighbors that we allow them the choice. But we, of course, advocate and plead and evangelize and try to show them a better way. 
but we don't force them. Yeah, Christianity is a real in its best form, as it ought to be. I think a religion of persuasion. We persuade people. Yeah. We don't impose. We don't force and coerce. The gospel isn't something that you can be coerced upon people. It, it, that, that's not going to produce good effects. Um, and I think a lot of it, if I was to answer the question of why we see a rise, I think a lot of it is fear-driven. We do Christians rightfully see things on the left, as I said, that are concerning, but we don't want to act out of fear. We of all people should not be fearful. And politics really runs on the currency of fear. fear. Fear is like the fuel of politics. That's why you see all these attack ads that are trying to scare you about the opponent because it's much more easy. It's much easier to motivate people by making them afraid of the opponent than by actually presenting a positive vision and talking about policies that will make a difference. That's not exciting. No. Fear is a good motivator. And But we as Christians need to resist that. We believe Jesus is on the throne. We believe that whatever comes, he's still going to be on the throne. And so we don't need to engage out of fear, but out of a confident hope. And here's the challenge. The demographic decline of American Christianity is, is real. And it's very hard for people to not feel fearful about that. Uh, Christians are still a supermajority, but a smaller supermajority than ever before in American history. And uh, particularly Protestantism, particularly white Protestantism, is a smaller proportion than ever before. And I think that some people, look, social scientists have, have shown, have proven in studies, when you tell people this true fact, it makes them feel defensive and it makes them more Christian nationalist. <laughs> so the mere awareness of the fact of demographic decline is seemingly causing people to kind of hunker down into a defensive crouch and seek to maintain tribal privilege and uh, and, and sort of social status. Uh and, and, and your message there is, is the right one. As Christians, we should not fear. And, and there's nothing intrinsically unjust about your tribe shrinking. That's, it's not unjust or just. It's just a fact. What's just or unjust is how you respond to it. Do you respond to it with confidence in the Lord, with uh, faith in his purposes, uh, and faith in his protection? Or do you respond to it with a political agenda to retain power by any and all means? Yeah. How would you help someone? Let's say there, there's someone listening to this and imagine you could put up an x-ray machine all across their, uh, their, their thinking on society and such. And you could, you could, the x-ray machine would examine all the different possible ways that they're sort of embracing Christian nationalist ideas in lesser or greater forms. What, what might be, if you can be the x-ray machine for us, what would be some of the things that you think might be detected? Like how would someone know that they're sort of embracing these things? Yeah, I try to address this in the conclusion to the book. I'm actually trying to find the passage right now. Um, it's It can be very hard to tell because oftentimes we can pursue the same policies from a Christian nationalist motivation yeah. or from a genuinely sort of Christian principled motivation. Sure. Uh, and I, I, I sort of challenge people to try asking themselves a number of questions. Um, what is driving our political activism? Is it fear of losing power or is it gratitude for the freedom we have and a desire to steward it for the next generation? Is it about protecting what we believe to be ours or giving to others what is rightfully theirs? Is it discomfort with change or a proactive effort to steer change in the right direction. And I go on and on with another, with 
more questions along the same lines. And that can be a way I hope for us to discern our motives. And I, and I suggest the book, do it in community with other people. We're often very bad judges of our own motives. So, you know, examine your heart and ask others to examine your heart to, to see what are the motives behind your particular political convictions. Um, and I think that could be a helpful practice. There's a couple of policies that I think are just ex- intrinsically Christian nationalists, like this school prayer and, and, a, and a, some, some ways of going about immigration restriction and things like that. Uh, but for the most part, I think our, our political engagement can be Christian and principled without falling into Christian nationalism if we ask ourselves these questions. Yeah. Um, one chapter or segment of the book that I, th- I found super interesting was how you intersected Christian nationalism with how with race in America, um, particularly how it, like the Christian right and the intersection of anti uh, segregation or pro segregation anti integration. Do you mind giving us like the bird's eye view of of sort of that um, that history? Yeah. Just put things in context. Yeah. So is Christian nationalism racist, right? Is the kind of short version of asking that question. Um, you know, before the 19th, before the civil rights movement, yes. People who wanted to advocate for a traditional notion of American identity didn't just talk about Christianity. They also talked about whiteness, right? To be an American meant to be a white Protestant. Um, and that's that was the version of Christian nationalism most famously prominent uh, in the 19, uh, in 19th century, and again, clear up through the 1960s. Um, the KKK was a Christian group, like they met in churches, and they talked about protecting America's Christian identity. And right. in the name of protecting America's Christian identity, they went out and did what they did with lynchings and all that. Um, so, so white nationalism and Christian nationalism perfectly overlapped for much of American history. It has changed in the last generation, the uh, the everybody has tried to shed overtly racist rhetoric, and that's good. And I want to kind of give everyone credit for that. Mm-hmm. If you listen to Christian nationalists today, they're not saying overtly racist things, and uh, and praise God for that. It is still important for us to recognize that there are inherited intergenerational inequalities that fall along racial lines. That is what scholars mean when they talk about systemic racism or structural racism that's a real thing right there are there is uh, intergenerational uh, racial inequalities that stem from past racist oppression from jim crow and slavery mm-hmm. but it seems that christian nationalists if you look at the polling data they tend to deny that that's the case they tend to not see the problem of intergenerational inequality or they don't think that the solution is a matter of public policy. They think it's only a matter of individual effort or or cultural renewal or something like that. Another way of putting it is their vision of a Christian nation appears to be entirely compatible with enduring structural racial inequalities in America. They just don't see a conflict between their Christian vision of America and racial inequalities. That's pretty troubling, pretty troubling, particularly when you think about the history of Christian nationalism overlapping so clearly with white nationalism in past ages. That's the most careful way I can put it. Uh, yeah. And I and I think that it, it, it would do well for Christians, particularly white, white Christians, to know this history better. I was yeah. embarrassed and ashamed when I 
read a lot of this stuff in course of researching this book. I kind of knew it, but I didn't know it, know it really deep down. And I read some books that really made it hit home in ways that were really kind of wrenching. But I think it's a, it's a, it's important for us collectively to go through that and recognize the ways our religion has been misused to prop up injustices in the past, which still has implications for American life in the present. Yeah. And you do a good job interacting with some of the key literature on that and providing some synopsis. But in so doing, like if folks pick up your book, they can kind of see some of those books that you're referencing and read more because it is it is it's troubling how strongly some sometimes we can have opinions on things that we're not even educated on and that we are complicit then with the status quo, which is which is not good and should should actually our our Christian our Christian resources and convictions should challenge us in other directions. Um, if I can ask a final question, sort of twofold, um, is why is Christian nationalism bad for society and why is it bad for the church? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I talked earlier about the problem for the church. Right? It, it allows the church to be used as a handmaiden for the state. It compromises the integrity and the purity of the church. It outsources the church's teaching ministry to Caesar. Um, on and on and on. It's, it's theologically bad. It's bad for the church. Um, it is bad for for our politics because it is at least um, has the seeds of illiberalism. That is to say, uh, it is, I think, inconsistent with the ideals of an open society. It, it has the effect of saying that if you're not this particular culture, if you're not of a Judeo-Christian culture or an Anglo-Protestant culture, you're not really one of us. You're not really an American. Mm-hmm. It's a very profoundly uncharitable thing to say. And at the very least, it's uncharitable and kind of insulting to uh, to many Americans who are of a different uh, cultural background. But I think you can see pretty easily how once you've said that, it becomes easier to pass laws that actually oppress people who aren't one of us. And that's sadly the story of a lot of American history. Uh, to refer again to slavery, Jim Crow, in, Indian removal, and and any other act of oppression and exclusion in American history. We found ourselves quite ready, quite able to pass laws and to take action to exclude and disenfranchise and oppress those who are not one of us. So I'm pretty careful about about giving the government the power to say who's us and who's not us, and then to pass laws about that. If, If there's one thing that defines us of who we are, it's the Constitution and the Declaration. It's our creed, it's our ideals of liberty and equality, which by definition are inclusive and should not give us the, the, the power to say, oh, you're not one of us just because you don't share my culture. I think the Constitution Declaration, they come with the doctrine of free culture, so to speak. Uh, p- people are allowed to be of whatever culture they want so long as they live under the Constitution and the Declaration. And that, I think, is a good definition of what it means to be an American. Yeah. And you're not saying um, like you when we were talking about nationalism and defining it early on in this conversation, um, kind of the nationalist vision of, you know, having the nation overlap, like the boundaries of the nation overlap perfectly as much as possible with the boundaries of the state or the country. It's not to say that there wouldn't be minorities or people that wouldn't fit that, but it just by definition makes them outsiders, less than true citizens, which is one of the dangers. You see that like in its most radical form in like Nazi Germany, maybe not most radical, but one of the most radical forms in Nazi Germany, obviously. Well, you you, you hear it a lot. You know, I, I, I have heard it a lot from people typically in red states who kind of 
love to assume the main of being the quote real Americans. We're the real Americans, sure. not like those elites, the liberal elites on the coasts or the big cities. Well, I'm sorry, but they are Americans too, right? Liberals mm-hmm. are Americans too. Uh, minorities are Americans too. You know, coastal elites are Americans too. We're all Americans. Jefferson said we're all uh, we're all Federalists. We're all Republicans. Uh, we're, we're all Americans. And I think we need that ethos again. You don't get to say you're the real American just because what you live in the heartland. Um, yeah, you're an American. You're a real American. But so so is everyone else within these borders who are here as as citizens who abide by the Constitution. Uh, and that's what what it means to be an American. And how would you respond then, building on that, to the the typical Christian nationalist argument? Or maybe, because what you do is you try to, rather than depicting a straw man, you try to build up a steel man, like the best version. You cite the best of Christian nationalist scholars, which do exist, in case you're not familiar with that, um, that and, and you present their arguments. How would you then respond in terms of why this is bad for society, the argument that we need actually a, a Christian culture that that as a template in order to sustain democracy. Um, so it's true that democracy, that the open society originated in a Christian cultural context, right? Uh, whether you're going to point to uh, sort of Protestant Britain in the 18th century or or the g- general conditions of Europe in the early modern era. But I have really good news. Uh, democracy spread worldwide. You know, there are free societies in every culture and on every inhabited continent. Uh, and it's shown pretty clearly that you don't actually need uh, a British or a Protestant or a Christian cultural context to sustain democracy in the future. That's where it came from originally, but you don't need that to continue it in the future because we've seen democracy spread worldwide. And that means we can relax a little bit about cultural change in America. We are becoming less Christian. We're also becoming less European, less Western. None of that says anything about the prospects of democracy in America. It really doesn't, because uh, people come to America because they like us, not because they hate our Constitution and want to change it. Uh, (laughs) There's going to be maybe differences in how they interpret it, but that's the story of America. We always argue about our differences, but we argue within a framework of peaceful transfer of power known as the Constitution, and uh, and that's worth preserving. Great. Well, if uh, folks want to pick up the book... Uh, they can do th- do so. It's called The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? And that came out in July of this year, 2022. It's around 300 pages. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul, and being willing to discuss these things. Kirk, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate it.